This is the Church Planting Podcast, brought to you by the Broadcast Network. Broadcast exists to support, train and encourage church planters. For more information about who we are or about the training that we offer, please visit our website at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org. Hello and welcome to episode 27 of the Broadcast Church Planting Podcast. Today we're going back to June of 2015 for a hangout with Andy Johnston from our Theology Training Stream. In this hangout, Andy talks about the mission of God and the history of the church. He'll walk us through church history. We'll see about the expansion of the church, persecution of the church, the fight for truth, and the fight for the person of Jesus. You can find the full hangout, all the notes on what Andy was saying, and a Q&A with Andy at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org slash episode 27. So without any further ado, here is Andy Johnston. We're going to focus on the mission of God. And it is a big ask to cover 2,000 years of history in 35 minutes, but here goes. Um, and obviously, we're focusing particularly on um, mission tonight. Obviously, when you look at the, the grand scheme of things from Abraham dating 1800, there or thereabouts, BC down to the 21st century, there's some discontinuities, but there's also some major continuities uh, through Old Testament, New Testament, church history. If you look in Genesis 1:28, that well-known verse where God, having created Adam and Eve, give, gives them a mandate to fill the earth with people in his image. And then you get to the end of the biblical narrative in Revelation 5, around the throne, there's a people from every tribe, tongue, people and nation, and it really is a case of job done. So that's what we're going to be uh, looking at. And uh, if we go to Acts 1 for a moment, you'll see that the mandate that Jesus gives uh, those first apostles, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And what we see Luke doing in the book of Acts is is unfolding that mandate. So by the time we get to Acts 28, Paul's gone to Rome. And uh, when we get to Romans 15, uh, Paul, uh, having uh, taken the gospel all through the Mediterranean world, he's wanting to get to Spain, which as far as Paul is concerned, is literally the end of the world. But of course, we now know that the world is much bigger than the apostle Paul realised So really what we're doing tonight is looking at the continuation of the story um, beyond the biblical narrative. And what we're going to do is just spend a few minutes looking at expansion, um, persecution, truth, and the person of Jesus, and particularly the doctrine of Christ. So if we look at expansion, I've already mentioned Romans 15, the Eastern Mediterranean Paul writes from Jerusalem to Illyricum, i.e. modern-day Albania and Croatia. The gospel's been made known. And what we see over the next four centuries is the gospel making huge headway in the Roman Empire, culminating in the conversion of Constantine, the uh, emperor 
um, in the early fourth century. Constantine is converted uh, in 312 AD. Over the next um, thousand years, we see um, the conversion of Europe in some way, shape, or form. Historians normally talk about Corpus Christianum, the whole of the body of society in Europe uh, in the period of uh, known generally as the Middle Ages, uh, was by uh, 11th century certainly considered Christianized. That's not to say that everyone was actually genuinely Christian, but Europe was considered a Christianized continent by that point. Uh, all bar very few, a few Jews, a few heretics, a few witches were considered to be Christian. But I think it's fair to say that Europe at that point was really, had very much a, a veneer of Christianity. And uh, underneath that veneer, there's a lot of popular superstition and folklore. What we see from about 1500 onwards, the, the early modern world, um, North America and uh, South America uh, becoming Christianized. North America substantially through Protestant mission. You think of the Pilgrim Fathers. South America uh, Christianized mainly through Catholic mission. Uh, and I'm thinking particularly um, of the Jesuits there. Then we get to the modern world. From about 1800 onwards, we see the uh, impact of the gospel in places like India, China, Africa, so that um, by, um, you know, 100 years ago, the gospel has gone around the world as we now understand it rather than how Paul understood it. So some of the highlights of 18th, 19th century mission, you think of William Carey, for example. Um, I think it's true to say by 1800, the, um, if you think of um, England particularly, uh, we'd really gen uh, degenerated into a sort of hyper-Calvinism that says, well, the Great Commission is only for the 12 apostles. It's no longer part of the mandate of the church today. And God will save who he wants to save. And he doesn't need you, me or William Carey to do it. And uh, so William Carey, as this really humble shoemaker character, gets a call of God to go to India. And uh, I guess, frankly, most of us would probably have given up, given how tough William Carey found it. Seven years without a single convert, huge personal sacrifice, a wife who has major mental health issues. But by the end of his ministry, he's seen 500 uh, Indian people come to Christ and has seen the Bible translated through his ministry into um, 35 plus uh, Indian languages and dialects. I guess when we move into the 19th century, I'm uh, thinking of also people like John Patton, uh, who's a personal hero of mine, took the gospel to Vanuatu, the New Hebrides. Um, any other Christian who's attempted to evangelize the New Hebrides, which are pretty much in the middle of nowhere in the South Pacific, had literally been eaten on the beach by uh, a very 
uh, aggressive cannibalistic culture. And uh, he arrives um, in 1858, and uh, these 19th century missionaries really are into long-term uh, mission. He's there for best part of 50 years. He has a period where he's driven off the island. His wife and his uh, little infant son die of horrific tropical diseases. But by the end of nearly 50 years of ministry, he's seen churches planted on, I think it's about 28 of the 31 islands. He's uh, translated the Bible into uh, the local dialect. Up until that point, it was an unwritten language. Think of Hudson Taylor, uh, who in many ways is the first cross-cultural missionary. Not only does he take the gospel into the Chinese interior, there were missionaries in China before Hudson Taylor, but um, they tended to work only on the eastern seaboard in an area that is um, quite European influenced at that time. But Hudson Taylor's got a, a call of God to take uh, the gospel to unreached people groups in, in the Chinese interior. And uh, if you know anything about Hudson Taylor, you know he breaks down a lot of cultural boundaries. He lives and eats and dresses like a Chinese person, much to the mocking and the scorn of the local fellow Europeans. Um, but um, he inspires a whole new generation of missionaries, people like C.T. Studd and the Cambridge Seven. Uh, so uh, Ruth Tucker, in a classic book on uh, mission from Jerusalem to uh, Irenaeus, a biographical history of Christian mission, says no other missionary in the 19th century since the Apostle Paul has had a wider vision and has carried out a more systematized plan of evangelizing a broad geographical area than Hudson Taylor. That is a huge commendation uh, to the life of ministry of Hudson Taylor. And even today, you think, if we want to carry on talking about China for a moment, you think of someone like Jackie Pullinger, who was a kid in her early 20s, goes to the wall city and today still works amongst the poorest people of Hong Kong, seeing God do amazing miracles on what seems like almost uh, a daily basis. So having given that very brief sketch of the um, outward impact of, of the gospel from uh, Jerusalem in the first century across the globe, today, it can seem for a moment, if we're not careful, to think, well, job done, isn't it? But actually, when you look a bit more closely, there are still today over 3,000 unreached people groups. There are uh, huge numbers of not just individual people, but people groups who have never even heard of Jesus and certainly have no indigenous churches. So that's one massive challenge that we face, reaching unreached people groups. Second massive challenge that we face in the 21st century is the re-evangelization of Europe. We do now live in a very clearly post-Christian Europe, and we have a challenge and a task to do what's never been done in church history before, to re-evangelize areas that once were Christian and are now 
no longer Christian. And I think it's Tim Keller who makes the point that actually that task of re-evangelization is in many ways much more difficult than the original task of evangelization. In the first few centuries, it was widely recognized that the cultural and moral boundaries of Christians were of a higher standard than their pagan neighbors. But actually in our culture in the 21st century, um, an aggressively post-Christian atheistic or agnostic culture genuinely believes that it has a morally superior culture than Christian culture. So that's a massive challenge for us. And then finally, of course, we have a challenge to reach the majority Muslim world. And uh, I think one of my few regrets when I was at, uh, at university was not studying uh, Islamic history um, more than uh, I did, because uh, for us as Christians, what happened in the Crusades uh, seems like an eternity away. It's a thousand years uh, since uh, the first crusade nearly. But for a Muslim, it's like it happened yesterday. So uh, in our task and responsibility to tell our Muslim neighbours about Jesus, how to do that effectively um, is a massive task and a massive responsibility. So that's that's the task. I want to spend a little bit of time now talking about persecution because in our um, we can easily feel on the defensive and on the back foot in a post-Christian 21st century uh, culture. But actually, the reality is we know very little of opposition in, in our culture. We have to understand that persecution is normal for Christians. It's not been normal for us in the West, us in the UK. Um, ever since uh, the Reformation, uh, Christianity has dominated the cultural agenda, both in Europe and in America. And this has tended to blind us from the long-term historical reality of um, persecution, uh, not just in in Christian history, but in parts of the world today. You think of Syria, you think of Iraq, you think of northern Nigeria. Um, those areas as they exist uh, currently have brought the reality of persecution back centre stage into our lives Today, we're very conscious of Christians suffering for the gospel in those places. We need to understand, of course, that Jesus tells us that persecution will be inevitable. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not above his master. If they persecuted me, says Jesus in John 15, 20, they will also persecute you. So persecution is perfectly normal in the history of the Christian church. The earliest persecution, of course, is not from the Jews, but, uh, sorry, is not from the Romans, but is actually from religious Jews. You think about the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts 6. You think about uh, the execution of uh, James, the brother of John. Uh, and then um, that's, that's very, very early. I guess the, the first... 
really aggressive persecution of Christians by the Romans comes with uh, the reign of Nero. Nero actually initially is quite benign in his approach to Christians. Paul writes the book of Romans uh, during the reign of Nero and says nothing at all about persecution. Um, But there's a real turning point in 64 AD uh, where uh, Rome is burned to the ground. Nero is looking for uh, a scapegoat and he focuses um, the Christians. And uh, Christians are always going to be in trouble in the Roman Empire if the emperor is hostile Um, because due to the imperial cult, the Roman emperor has the right to insist on worship. So, for example, uh, almost certainly it it is during the reign of the emperor Domitian that John is um, sent to Patmos um, in exile where he writes the book of Revelation. And Domitian is particularly hostile to Christians because he insists that the imperial oath, um, the uh, command, if if you like, to um, uh, make uh, an oath to his genius uh, compulsory. So if he stars himself Lord and God, then Christians who are saying, no, Jesus is Lord, that he is a higher Lord than the emperor, are clearly going to be on something of a sticky wicket. So by the time you get to the second century, we, we, we need to understand, I guess the persecution is like waves on the beach. The tide is coming in. It's generally hostile, uh, but it ebbs and flows. So um, particularly notable martyrs would be Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch, who's executed in 110 AD, and then Polycarp, who is martyred in 156 AD. Polycarp is really significant in the history of the church because he's actually the last connection directly with the apostles. He had been discipled by the apostle John. Uh, he's a very frail old man, and he's dragged into the arena, and the local authorities uh, simply command him, swear the oath to Caesar and I will release you, revile the Christ. So in other words, acknowledge ultimately that Caesar is Lord, not Jesus, and you can go free. And Polycarp comes up with this beautiful um, reply, 86 years, he says, I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? Um Of course, by the 4th century, Constantine becomes a Christian, and uh, from uh, his reign onwards, Christianity is first tolerated and then becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire. But uh, if we just skip through uh, a few centuries and we come to the early modern period, the 16th century, we see there's a new form of persecution in this period, uh, which tragically is actually one type of Christian persecuting another type of Christian. So in the 1550s and 1560s, there are a number of um, people who actually record and write down the accounts of uh, different types of martyr. So, for example, 
probably in England the best known one is John Fox's Book of Mon uh, Martyrs or Acts and Monuments, as it's originally uh, entitled. Or there's another group of uh, very significant um, martyrs uh, whose lives are recorded in a book called Martyrs Mirror. These are the accounts of the so-called Anabaptist martyrs. The Anabaptists are the first people for many, many hundreds of years who uh, have rediscovered the biblical truth of believers' baptism. And because of this, they pay a very, very high price. They are um, persecuted by pretty much everyone, Lutherans, Calvinists, Catholics, um, almost every Catholic and Protestant brand of Christian that you can imagine end up persecuting the Anabaptists. And the Anabaptists uh, survive largely by going underground or uh, by going into exile. So today, uh, the Anabaptists survive in Mennonite and Amish communities in North America and in Canada. Um, 21st century persecution, I guess the most dangerous place um, on the planet to be a Christian today is northern Nigeria. I'm saying that obviously places like North Korea are really, really dangerous, but it, it is, as far as we know, impossible to have uh, an overground church in, in, uh, in North Korea. But in northern Nigeria, for example, um, there, there are some really, really courageous church planters. Um, I had the huge privilege of meeting a few years ago a man called Ben Kwashi, who's actually the Anglican Archbishop of Yos. And uh, over a thousand Christians have lost their lives in, uh, since 2009 at the hands of Boko Haram. And Ben Kwashi himself, if you get the opportunity to listen to his testimony online, it's an amazing, amazing testimony. Uh, he's received death threats. His wife has been brutally attacked, raped, blinded. And uh, all the while, he just keeps planting churches all over uh, northern Nigeria and at the same time urging Christians to restrain from retaliation and avoiding playing into the hands of terrorists who are attempting to destabilize communities and uh, create religious strife. So that's a, a very, very uh, swift um, overview of persecution. Let's just say one or two things about the battle for truth um, when we look um, at the, uh, the whole issue of Christian mission. The battle for authority has been the major challenge for Christians in the last 2,000 years. In fact, it goes back much further than the last 2,000 years. It goes right back to the garden. Genesis 3.1, um, the snake says to Eve, did God say. And uh, Christians have been uh, consistently challenged with uh, those three words um, over the last 2,000 years. I think um, today lots of Christians lack confidence in the authority of Scripture. And, 
you know, it's a whole new generation of Christians who are challenged by their mates who happen to have read Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code and think Dan Brown actually has a coherent theology, which, of course, he doesn't. Um, and lots of people, because it took nearly 400 years for the church to officially finally recognize the 27 books that make up our New Testament, the so-called New Testament canon. That was eventually decided at the Council of Carthage in 397 AD. And that seems an awful long time, um, nearly 400 years uh, after the uh, the life and ministry, death and resurrection of Jesus, and certainly nearly uh, probably 300 years since the New Testament had been written. So lots of people say, well, how then can we trust that the church uh, got it right in deciding which books made up the New Testament? Can we uh, Have we got any credibility in saying that these books are authoritative? Um we shouldn't imagine for a moment that the church decided what was in the New Testament. What the church did over not just, you know, at one moment in time in 397 AD, but what they did over um, decades and over centuries was recognize what was Scripture. So I would argue that Scripture is essentially self-authenticating. So if you look, for example, in 2 Peter 3.16 or 1 Timothy 5.18, you'll see there that both Peter and Paul are recognizing um, the writings of contemporary Christians as scripture as they're being written. So Peter, for example, is saying Paul's writings are scripture. That's a massive statement. When you think Peter is a Jew, he has a very, very high regard for um, the Old Testament, and he's placing the writings of a contemporary fellow Jew on a par with the writings of Moses and calling them both scripture. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 5.18 um, puts together a quotation from the book of Deuteronomy and a quotation from his best mate Luke, from the, the uh, Gospel of Luke, and calls them both scripture. So again, Paul is making a massive statement there about the writings of contemporaries and putting it on a par with um, Old Testament writing. So scripture is self-authenticated. We need to remember as well that all of the New Testament is written between 48 and 95 AD. Um, so the so-called Gnostic Gospels that Dan Brown gets very excited about are second and third century writings. Um, everything that we have that was written in what's called the apostolic age, the period uh, in church history of those first apostles, um, everything that's written that has survived because, uh, of course, Paul writes a couple of other letters to the Corinthians, for example, that have not survived. All of that uh, that has survived is in our New Testament. And it's apostolic in the sense that either it was written by an apostle, like the Gospel of John, for example, or the 13 letters of Paul, or, it's, or else it's written by 
someone who's in a very close relationship with an apostle. Um, so people often forget that the person who wrote more than half the New Testament is not the Apostle Paul. He writes 13 books, nearly half the number of books. And of course, Paul's letters, for the most part, are, are brief. Uh, but if you do a word count, the person who writes more than half the New Testament is, uh, is actually Luke with the two-volume uh, Luke-Acts um, contribution. And Luke is not an apostle himself, but of course he is part of Paul's apostolic team, just like John Mark is not an apostle himself, but actually his uh, um, connection, apostolic connection, is with the apostle Peter, and he's part of Peter's apostolic uh, team. So the New Testament is either written by apostles or written by people in close relationship with apostles. I guess to be absolutely honest for a moment, of course, the one uh, book we don't know about authorship is the book of Hebrews. Um, but what we can say there is it's it's written in that first generation um, of history of the church. Uh, we don't know who it's written by, but we do know from reading what it says that its theology fits with other apostolic texts with the rest of the, uh, of the New Testament. If we compare the writings of the New Testament with the so-called Gnostic Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Judas, all of those are second, third century. They're not written by eyewitnesses. They're not written by people in close contact with eyewitnesses. They're not biographical, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're written by uh, a particular sect within uh, the church called the Gnostics who claim to have a secret knowledge of Jesus. So the, the point I'm making here is our 27 books that make up our New Testament are unique and authoritative in church history. Let's just talk, touch on the Reformation for a moment because if the Reformation is about anything, it's about the authority of the Bible. When people think of Luther, they often think about indulgences, they often think about justification by faith, they think about the Pope. But fundamentally, the Reformation, Luther's Reformation, is about the authority of the Bible. Luther uh, argues uh, consistently and coherently that Scripture and Scripture alone rather than the Pope or a council of the church uh, uh, or uh, anything else, is authoritative. And if you just unpack that for a moment, um, in England specifically, the king and the bishops are so mistrustful of ordinary people reading the Bible, it's actually a criminal offence in England to own an English translation of the Bible um, from um, the early 15th century, right through uh, um, uh, to the writing of Tyndale. Tyndale, of course, who translates the New Testament into English, ends up being executed for it in 1536. And then eventually, by 1539, for the first time uh, in English history, there are Bibles written in English, translated um, um, largely dependent, ironically, on the work of Tyndale uh, from the Greek and 
uh, Hebrew texts that are made available in English churches. Um, the Catholic Church, um, led by the Pope, tended to emphasise not the importance of the Bible, but the authority of uh, uh, of the Pope. And when we look at Luther's Reformation, the issues that we often focus on are largely dependent on the premise of the authority of Scripture. So Luther gets justification by faith alone because he's read Romans, particularly Romans 1, 16 and 17. I'm made righteous through faith in Jesus, not my by my own good works, because that's what Paul is teaching in Romans 1. Uh, priesthood of all believers, for example. I don't have to access God through the church or a priest. I can access God directly because Jesus is my great high priest. He gets through the um, the book of Hebrews. Um, all the ceremonies of the church, like baptism and breaking bread, uh, are debunked of their magical powers um, because he reads the text of Scripture and he understands baptism and breaking bread in a much more biblical uh, context. Now, let's just translate that into um, today's culture. Culture today is changing very, very rapidly. And um, the big challenge for us as Christians is there is, I mean, a lot of Christians who are wanting to ch change truth in line with culture. And, of course, truth is unchanging. How we apply truth to culture is going to change, and we see that you know, consistently through church history. We've talked about Hudson Taylor earlier. Hudson Taylor applied the truth of the gospel into a Chinese culture, but um, truth itself is unchanging. We need constantly to... Uh, reject and to challenge the, the lie, did God say? And just finally, I wanted to um, touch on uh, doctrine about the person of Christ in church history. Um, I would say this is one of the, the most challenged and the most fraught areas of church history in the last 2,000 years. As Christians, we believe that Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. And if we don't believe that, then frankly, we have no Christian faith. If Jesus isn't thoroughly human, then what does this say about his resistance to temptation or his suffering on the cross? And if Jesus is not thoroughly God, then he can't act as our mediator. But if we look at um, church history, we'll see throughout church history, there are people who challenge both the idea that Jesus is thoroughly human and uh, the idea that Jesus is thoroughly God. So late first century into the second century, for example, you've got a group called the Docetists that challenged the idea that Jesus was thoroughly human. He just appeared human, but he was somehow uh, immune from the pressures and trials and tribulations that, that we encounter, uh, so the docetists say. Or the Arians, following the teaching of the third century theologian Arius, teach there was a time when he, i.e. Christ, was not. 
So they actually came to the conclusion that Jesus was a created being. He was the first created being. He was the most magnificent uh, of uh, God's creation. Uh, but according to Arius and his followers, Jesus uh, was indeed uh, created. So complete misunderstanding um, of Colossians 1.15, where Paul describes Jesus as the firstborn uh, overall creation, which is really a statement about authority, not about origins. And even today, you meet people like Jehovah's Witnesses who do not see Jesus as fully God. They really are regurgitating Arianism. So in conclusion, the challenges we face today as Christians are actually remarkably similar to the challenges that Christians have faced for the last 2,000 years. Can we really trust the Bible? Is Jesus who we really claim to be? But the mission of God is still being fulfilled. The gospel is still being proclaimed. It's gone to places that the Apostle Paul had never even dreamt existed. Persecution has always existed. We need to remember 11 out of 12 of the original apostles are executed. We shouldn't be surprised, therefore, if persecution is increasing today. Meanwhile, the world is still being turned upside down with the gospel as we're told it was in Paul's day in Acts 17, verse 6. There are still unreached people groups for us to reach. And, of course, we need to understand the importance of mission, uh, linking it with eschatology. Um, Jesus says very specifically that this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to all nations and then the end will come. So in our commitment to to mission, uh, somehow in bringing together the sovereignty of God with God's promise there that um, as the nations are reached, that will hasten the return of Jesus. So understanding the central importance of mission and the problems that Christians have faced on mission Uh, over the last 2,000 years is really, really important in understanding of biblical eschatology as well. Well, we hope you found this hangout helpful. You can find all of the notes on what Andy was saying, plus a Q&A with Andy at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org slash episode 27.